You're listening to the Let's Talk Strata podcast hosted by Mark Mercier. Whether you're a tenant, lot owner, caretaker or industry professional, this podcast is for anyone connected with a body corporate or strata title. Tune in every fortnight to hear thought-provoking discussions with industry leaders and experts on topics both practical and technical that will spark your interest. Welcome to the Let's Talk Strata podcast, a podcast dedicated to bringing you cutting-edge views from pinnacle industry leaders and experts on all things Strata in Queensland. Today, our special guest is John Marnie. John is the director of Marnie's Lawyers in Brisbane. Just a little bit about John. John is the founding partner of, or one of the founding partners of Marnie's Lawyers, and is now the firm's managing partner and head of management rights and property law team. John has a long career in the practice of law, commencing from when he was admitted as a lawyer in Queensland in 1978 and also in New South Wales in 1990. Since 1991, John has practiced extensively in body corporate law and predominantly in the area of management rights. John's involvement in strata law is extensive. For instance, he was heavily involved in the formulation of the Body Corporate and Community Management Act 1997 and subsequent reviews and amendments to that legislation. John leads a significant litigation team at Marnie's Lawyers with particular expertise in body corporate law and as such and invariably has dealt with a number of significant body corporate disputes and none other than the High Court decision of Viridian Noosa Residences. John has also lectured in body corporate law at UQ for approximately four years. So welcome John, it's a great pleasure having you on board today. Thank you Mark. Now in terms of your uh, fairly lengthy and extensive um, practice in the law and in particular body corporate law, how did you come about the um, decision to practice in the area of body corporate itself? Mm, Good question, Mark. I started my career uh, doing family law back uh, in the late 70s and the firm I was then with opened up a branch office in a little town called Beanley at that time Mm. and uh, I went there and ran that practice and realised that property was a more suitable area for me and Mm. got involved in property transaction work and and specialised in property. Then when I moved to the city in 1991, uh, one of my then partners was involved in a management rights dispute Mm. at a uh, building called the Sands on the Gold Coast. Oh, yes. And uh, we did a lot of work around that. And I looked at it and thought, management rights. I'd done one transaction uh, back in the 80s, but never gave it too much thought. And I looked at this and thought, this is an area that complements property because it's a Mm. transactional-based type of work where I enjoy dealing with clients because you're working towards an outcome, uh, namely the settlement of a transaction, yeah. and it was related to property, and I thought it was a good fit with what I was doing. So mm. we targeted that area and, and did so with, with some success, obviously, and that was in 1991, and uh, since then we've grown what we what we now have in the practice. Right, so um, a big transition from family law into really property law. Yeah, very much so. Very different yeah. areas. Yeah. Uh, now, you, you mentioned the Sands, and of course that's uh, one of those uh, iconic uh, buildings buildings on, on the uh, esplanade there. In terms of uh, your practice in body corporate law, uh, and in particular through Marnie's Lawyers, you've expanded that significantly over the last few years. Tell us a little bit about um, um, what you've been doing and some of the significant things you've done there. Sure, Mark. Uh, I personally don't handle litigation matters. I will get involved in disputes in the early stages and and do my best to try and resolve them Mm. but if it becomes litigious I hand it over to the litigation team which is Ben Seckham and Mitchell Downs who are Mm. 
I think probably two of the, the, the best practitioners in that field uh, in, in Queensland, if not Australia. They've handled, as you said before, the, the High Court case, which was one that uh, originated with me. We've had a number of other decisions, a, a very important decision in the Court of Appeal involving the issue of resident letting agents, management rights operators and how they conduct their trust account and charge owners for their fees, etc. As I said, they went to the Court of Appeal. Uh, we've had a number of other significant management rights decisions, Pivotal Point, the Grange being recent ones as well. In terms of the transactional work, uh, we have a team of about six or seven lawyers who do pretty much nothing else but management rights, transactional type work, the conveyancing of the mm. businesses and looking after the variations, etc., including our Gold Coast office where Matthew Manns is the resident partner down there. Matthew was my uncle clerk back in the early days and he now runs that practice down there with uh, two or three assistants as well and then the team up here in Brisbane. Right. So fairly um, diverse team, extensive team, um, handling really everything body corporate, isn't it? Very much so. Mm. Uh, because we specialise in management rights, uh, we are perceived uh, sometimes as perhaps not being the go-to firm for a body corporate, particularly if it involves mm. a resident manager. But having said that, the litigation team and I do a lot of work in body corporate law, not just the management rights, yes. So if we jump into some of the issues that uh, no doubt uh, come across your desk and uh, come across the Commissioner's Office admin team and, and the Commissioner himself, disputes relationships mm. um, body corporate's all about those those things relationships and that ultimately leads to disputes down the track so what are your thoughts on the development of relationship in a body corporate after all it's a community that you live in mm. um, what are your thoughts on on the relationship angle it's critical mm. um, I find the the best buildings are those where you've got that great working relationship between the committee uh, the body corporate manager who's a very key element in this mm -hmm. and the on-site resident manager as well so I think that relationship if that relationship starts to break down then you're going to have problems and one of the reasons I see it break down the most is because of people's expectations the, the wrong expectations mm -hmm. either you've got a resident manager who doesn't really understand what he ought to be doing so he has a different expectation of what he should be doing compared to the unit owners who might have an inflated expectation of what he should be doing or perhaps a reasonable expectation of what he should be doing and mm. he's just not doing it. So unless those expectations align and align properly, then it's very hard to have those relationships and build on those relationships. Mm. And, of course, those expectations often invariably lead to dissecting down a contract and a scope of works and schedules and all of that. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on how those things are drafted and, and how to really fix those things mm. up? It can be said that you can have the worst drafted agreement but have the best possible relationship because mm. people's expectations align. Then you can have the, the, the most well-drafted document in the world, but you're going to have disputes because you have different expectations between the two parties to those two agreements. So a very well-written agreement will not necessarily lead to a great relationship. It's mm. got to be more than that. My personal view about the agreements is that a very well-written, prescriptive, detailed schedule of duties is the way to go because it will set out clearly what the manager should be doing on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, half-yearly basis. So at least the expectations are set out somewhere, so you've got a starting point. 
Now, whether the manager is prepared to accept that that's what he has to do and to what standard he ought to have to do those things is another matter. But at least it's a start. So I think I think a good document, a good agreement, is important. It's not going to solve all the problems, mm. but it's important. And I guess some of the issues that body corporates will find is um, resident managers come and go. They will often sell after three years, five years, yep. and you get a totally different dynamic with the relationship. And uh, and then um, you might have different expectations from that manager against yep. the body corporate. Yeah. Things like uh, reading a contract uh, in a strict black letter of the law yeah, kind of way. Yeah. How do you approach that kind of dynamic change? Well, the first thing I say to my people is that don't necessarily treat that contract as a Bible because it's bound to lead you to problems. For example, the classic case up the Sunshine Coast years ago, I forget the name of the complex, but where the manager refused to mow the footpath because it wasn't in his contract. There were general duties to keep the complex properly maintained to a proper standard, etc. But the manager read his contract and said, well, no, there's no mention of footpath, I'm not going to mow it. Now, Mm. personally, if that had been me, of course I'd mow the footpath. You mow the footpath Mm. to your house at home, it's not part of your land, but you mow it because you're keeping the place tidy. Mm. So I think that, that kind of black and white stuff can lead to disputes. So there's got to be some flexibility in all of that. By all means, don't start doing things which is going to make you a slave to the body corporate. But by the same token, don't don't refuse to do something minor just because it's not there mm-hmm. in your contract. So I try and encourage people to be flexible about how they treat mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. I, I also try and get them to look at it as though when they say, well, is that a job for a specialist task or is that really my job? I say, well, think about what you would do in your own home. Will you change a light bulb in your own home? At what height would you stop changing light bulbs? Mm. That kind of thing. To mm. try, you know, some things like touch-up painting, you know. Would you do that yourself or would you get someone from outside to come in and do it? So try and take that practical approach to yeah. interpreting those duties. So at the end of the day, it boils down to a bit of give and take and some common sense perhaps uh, when it comes to really interpreting even a prescriptive contract. Yeah. I, uh, I think so. I mean, the prescription mm. helps because if there's a dispute, at least you've got somewhere to go to because there are, in the generally worded contracts, you've often got nowhere to go to to try and find out what they really meant there. But yeah. if you've got that prescriptive list of duties, at least that's a good start. So what are your thoughts then on a body corporate committee grappling with a poorly written agreement? Um, what kind of advice would you give about, say, trying to effect some change, leveraging some matters that are of interest to the caretaker versus yeah. uh, those that align with the body corporate? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we see that quite a lot. Management rights for their value uh, depends upon the agreements being topped up, renewed, whatever you want to call it. So every few years a manager is going to go back to the body corporate and say that we'd like to have a further option, five-year option or three-year option, added to our agreement. If the body corporate has genuine concerns about the duties or the performance of the manager, that's an opportunity for them to suggest to the manager, look, we're happy to try and accommodate what you want, but in exchange for that, we'd like you to consider some changes to your agreement to protect us not just in relation to our dealings with you but in relation to our dealings with people going forward as well and and use that as an opportunity to do something. I often say to people who come to me and they say the body corporate wants us to agree to this 
detailed list of duties and we don't want it. And I say, well, if that list of duties has been prepared by someone like a Barry Turner or Danny Little, who really understand mm. what the industry is about, then that list will be nothing more than setting out clearly what is reasonably expected of you in your agreement in the first place. So you really aren't agreeing to anything more than what you are probably being required to do anyhow. It gives the body corporate a bit more accountable, makes you a bit more accountable in the sense mm-hmm. that if you're not doing it, the body corporate can point to it and say you ought to be doing it. And look, um, in terms of managing those duties, what do you find is one of the biggest challenges, say, for the caretaker? And, and I think where I'm going with this is um, the concept of um, dispute where the body corporate might be inclined to issue a remedi- remedial mm-hmm. action notice or even think about uh, being a bit more gung-ho about it and, mm. and, and threaten termination. Yeah. If it gets to that stage, you've got a problem because there's been a breakdown of relationship. Mm. If, the, if the body corporate's at the point where they're going to issue a remedial action notice or threaten to do so, then something has happened to get it to that stage. Why are they dissatisfied with what mm. you're doing? Now, it should never get to that stage. If it does, you have a problem and you need to deal with it. And that problem can be because of your own poor performance. It can be because you've got a particular person or persons on the committee who are dictatorial, bullying in nature and mm. just want to take control and, and treat you like a menial employee rather than an independent contractor. So it mm. depends on, on those reasons. And mm. we try and work out those reasons before we start to advise the client on what to do in that situation. In all the years I've been doing it, I've only ever seen a remedial action notice and termination go to the nth degree and result in a termination, I think, on two occasions. And they are circumstances where the body corporate probably ought to have terminated as well. In all the other cases where the body corporate's done that, it's generally led nowhere except Mm. to a lot of money being spent by either party. Because at the end of the day, even if the body corporate gets to the point where they can terminate through the remedial action notice process, failure to comply, general meeting to resolve to terminate the first thing that happens is the bank steps in. The bank puts a receiver or a manager in there. They run the show for the body corporate, which is not good for unit owners or the values of units, and they then sell to somebody else. Mm. So you haven't got rid of what you may have been hoping to have gotten rid of, and you've generally spent a lot of money to get to that point in time. Yeah, and of course um, uh, there is perhaps a a hope in a body corporate sometimes that uh, they can apply enough pressure to force a caretaker to sell. Yeah, we will encourage that as well, Mark. If we see a situation where there's a clear conflict of interest between the committee and the manager, and the, the managers can be at fault, if we see that, that there is no hope of that relationship being turned around, then we will encourage the manager to try and negotiate a deal with the body corporate Mm. uh, whereby we might want something from the body corporate in exchange for giving the body corporate a commitment to sell within a certain period of time. And and that's a far better way to resolve a dispute Mm. than allowing it to go off to QCAT or wherever. Well, of course, and you've talked about the immense amount of uh, money that's spent in Mm. disputing what is quite often uh, small things. Yep. Uh, like weeding a garden or, yeah. or, or blowing leaves off a path. Mm. Um, how do you go about identifying 
the root causes of some of these things. Uh, do you use the traditional dispute resolution uh, strategies or, or is it more analytical for you? Yeah. First thing I try and do is try and get it clear in my mind what the problem is. For example, someone will come to me as a caretaker and say, the body corporate's being unreasonable. They expect me to do A, B, C, D and E. And I'll say to them, how much is the body corporate paying you? What's your remuneration? And they'll say to me, $100,000. I'll say to them, how many hours a week roughly do you put in to what you do? Oh, 30? And I say, well, let's look at that. $100,000, that at the rate of about $45 an hour thereabouts, that's about 50 hours a week. Mm. Now, I'm not saying the body corporate can compel you to work 50 hours a week, but that would be a reasonable expectation going on the going rate. So perhaps we need to have a look at exactly what you're doing. If you're only spending 25 or 30 hours a week, perhaps you need to be doing more than that. If that doesn't suit you, then perhaps you aren't suited for management rights. On the other hand, if their salary is $100,000 and they're putting in 80 hours a week, then you'd say, well, there is something mm. not quite right here. So how, how can we deal with that? So we try and get an understanding of what the problem is and then target a solution towards that. And there is a very good fellow in Danny Little who is, runs an organisation called MRS on the Gold Coast. And Danny's had a number of buildings, probably in his career, maybe 10, 15 or so in mm. one form or another. And he now acts as a consultant. You might have come across him mm. in, 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 yeah. in your field as well. And Danny will often get involved in a, in a kind of a mediator role, even though that's not strictly speaking his role. So he'll he'll come in, he'll do an assessment like me in terms of what's going on here, who's the unreasonable party, and he will then sit the committee and the manager down and talk through the issues they've got. And often he's able to yeah. demonstrate to the committee where their expectations are not justified. And you've got a townhouse complex here on the outskirts of Logan, but you're expecting it to look like the Hyatt hotel mm. wherever you know a five-star complex when you're paying you've got and you're paying for two-star caretaker so mm. you know those sorts of things and and that works very very well provided you've got a committee who are prepared to listen yes. and you're not dealing with someone who just wants to be a dictator or yeah. a bully to the caretaker yeah so it seems to me it's it's a very good form of uh reality testing for both yeah. parties yeah so often you'll find that uh, a lot of committees are actually run by conflict um, and fueled by conflict. Mm -hmm. Do you find even just providing strategies to a caretaker about how to manage those, perhaps to diffuse the, the conflict or manage the personal side of things yeah. that locks a lot of doors there? Yeah, I do, Mark. It's interesting. Uh I went to a um, mediation conference in the Magistrates Court years ago mm -hmm. and my client was an elderly lady landlord and she brought along her son who was a psychiatrist and he taught me a bit about dispute resolution mm -hmm. at that point in time and one of the most important things is to find some common ground mm -hmm. because there's always common ground of some sort and if you can just work towards that for a start to take some of the heat out of the conflict between the two parties... Mm -hmm then you've got to do that. So that's that's one strategy I encourage managers to adopt in dealings with the body corporate. Uh, the other is that so often we find that managers do a very good job. There's a couple of people on the committee who are never going to be happy, but the other owners, investor owners who live wherever, they've got no idea 
what's really going on because the manager's never told them. Yeah. The manager hasn't communicated with them. He's never sent them photographs of what he might have done. He's never told them about what he's done. He's never told them how his occupancy rates are much higher than anybody else around the place. So he just hasn't kept them informed of mm. what he's doing. And he has got nothing to show to the owners to counter what they're hearing from the, the, the people on the committee. You know, So there's mm. that as well. You, you've got to do a mm. good job, but you've got to let people know mm. that you're doing a good job as well. So it's almost like a form of um, self-marketing of, of what you're doing, and in a sensitive way, of course, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, for, for the sake of your own interests down the track, uh, important for people to know what, yep. what exactly the good work that you're doing. Very much so. Yeah. Yep. In terms of um, termination themselves, um, no doubt that this, you know, these are contractual matters, but uh, they are overlaid with... Uh, you know, a legislative framework, and then of course, when we look at the commissioner's office, there's a just and equitable mm. uh, overlay on top of that. So, how do you reconcile all of those different elements with the practicalities of actually getting to a termination? As I said before, Mark, we've seen a tiny number mm. of successful terminations, and part of the reason is because the legislation does have some fairly prescriptive provisions around the remedial action notices, the steps you have to take before you get there. And we've won a number of decisions on the basis that those notices were defective. The other thing is that Commissioner's Office and and QCAT do acknowledge, as you say, from the just and equitable Mm. basis, that this whole concept of reasonableness and whether Mm. the body corporate has acted reasonably or not. And in the decision we won on, uh, in QCAT uh, a month or so ago mm. involving the Grange, what happened there was that the chairman was determined to see the management rights at the complex come to an end. Mm. Having issued a remedial action notice, even before it expired, he called a general meeting to approve the expenditure on a court case to terminate the management rights even mm. before the remedial action notice had expired. Now, QCAT looked at that, the member looked at that and said, well, there's conduct there that indicated what the true motivation here was. So those those things in that context are relevant. Um, again, we try to do our best to stop it getting to a QCAT situation, mm. to, to try and work out what the problem is, whether we involve someone like Danny Little for a start or whether we do it in a different way depends upon how we assess the mm. circumstances and do it that way. But from our experience, the whole... QCAT Commissioner's Office route rarely achieves a satisfactory outcome Mm. for anybody. And if you can avoid it, then you should. And then, of course, it damages relationships, doesn't it, Uh, moving forwards, even if, you know, whatever the outcome happens to be. And as you said, that there's very little uh, success in the termination route there. Um, So in terms of um, recommendations you give to caretakers, do you find that they're usually amenable to taking those approaches or are they more litigious? Uh, We generally succeed in getting them to understand what we tell them. Mm. There there is, for whatever reason, a reluctance on many uh, caretakers to accept the need for a specific schedule of duties. They have this fear that if they commit to that and they don't do it, the body corporate is going to terminate. So Mm. we have to explain to them, well, no, it doesn't work that way at all. That's what your duties are. 
if you follow that as a checklist, and that's that's a great checklist for you to use mm. on a day-by-day basis. If you don't, if you miss something, then before something can, can happen, the body corporate have to give you notice, reasonable time to rectify, etc., etc. Mm. So we can generally persuade them that is going to work in their favour. You know, worst case scenario for resident manager, if, if we believe that the problem really is one or two committee members, and if we got rid of them, we'd get rid of the problem, then we'll encourage them to go down that route to mm. requisition an EGM with the help of owners, remove the committee or committee members and put in a more reasonable mm. committee at that point in time. So we generally are able to convince the managers to go down the route that we take. As I said before, we, we discourage getting involved in litigation mm. unless you have to and I would have thought nine times out of ten it's the body corporate that start the action not the manager. Mm. So in terms of um, best practice for a, a, a resident manager in achieving the, the smoothest pathway yeah. with a body corporate what would your best practice tips yeah. be? Yeah. Well I think if you don't have a schedule of duties in your agreement get one made up. Mm. You don't have to make it part of your agreement but get one made up either yourself or through someone like a Danny Little. And do you think um, that particular part of the process is a collaborative process or is it something that the caretaker should simply devise and present? I think the caretaker should do it because he should have the capacity to do that. If he understands his job and his role, he'll know what to do to be able to do that. In recent times, I've been working with Danny Little on another document which is basically a, a detailed checklist of all the compliance issues that a resident manager should be aware of in terms of infrastructure, checks and fire safety mm. and all those 40 or 50 things, whatever it is. So they need to have something like that as a guide mm. as well to make sure there's compliance there. Mm. The other really important thing from the relationship point of view, most agreements will have an obligation upon the body corporate to appoint a representative to be the person who liaises with the on-site manager. That is really important, that if they haven't got one, then the manager should ask the committee to appoint someone and appoint someone who is reasonable. And I encourage them to liaise regularly and have a walk around the complex every three, four, six weeks or so with that representative so that if there are any problems, they can be identified and the manager can deal with them. Then if you get to a committee meeting and the committee is saying, why haven't you done A, B and C? Well, you can say, well, I walked around the complex with your representative only last week mm-hmm. and none of this was brought to my attention. So if you have that relationship with that liaison person and you do your regular walk-arounds, you shouldn't find yourself in a situation of being told you've missed something or haven't done something. Mm. So it's part of just that collaborative process, isn't it? And and putting some responsibility on both parties to make sure that the best interests of yep. body corporate are being met there. Yeah. And I think from a, you know, before about the best practice of body corporate, I think for a body corporate as its first step to run off to a law firm to get a perceived problem sorted out is not the right approach. They really ought to talk it through with their body corporate manager uh, to see what the body corporate manager has to say about what their problem is and then involve someone uh, like a Danny Little to get involved to help them through it. And what's your advice to a body corporate manager? Because uh, I know there's a lot of body corporate managers that are, are, are going to be listening 
what's a best practice for them in terms of managing the dispute because they're often the conduit between the lawyer and the the caretaker and then the the body corporate committee what should they do when when confronted with the instruction to issue a remedial action notice or engage a lawyer well i guess the first thing is it's disappointing that it's got to that stage where Mm. uh, someone has allowed it to get to the stage where that is what the committee is contemplating because it doesn't happen overnight there's been something leading up to that so people haven't addressed it in that time but if it gets to that stage i think the body corporate manager should be warning the committee that we can go down that route if you like but from our experience it's not going to work it's going to cost a lot owners a lot of money we're better off to look at some alternative way to deal with this either we have a manager who is genuinely incompetent Mm -hmm. and doesn't know what they're doing and or we have a manager who doesn't really understand what the duties in the agreement are, so we need to make that person better educated. How can we do that? Mm. Uh, do we need to involve a third party to come in and, and do some kind of an assessment? Not an assessment to find fault with the manager, but mm. to do an assessment to find where the manager is falling down and how the manager can then overcome that, rather than necessarily finding some way to breach the manager or terminate the agreement, but to find how we can together solve the problem. Yeah, and it's often a fine line between, you know, enhancing a relationship that may be fragmented a little bit. I guess you're also looking at pointing out some of the good things they're doing to counteract the the sting of the bad stuff that clearly needs to be resolved. Yeah. Uh, but uh, to create some kind of rapport and, and working relationship yeah, there. Yeah. Do you think um, traditional dispute resolution at even that point, and I guess the finger points towards the body corporate manager to almost act in that quasi role, uh, do you think that that's something that uh, you know maybe body corporate managers should look at maybe upskilling or, or getting some you know, role in that process? Very helpful. If they could. And and there are some good ones around that you see who do that. But I guess it depends on what you see the role of the body corporate manager as. Are they nothing more than just a post office box for correspondence to be sent from and sent to? Mm. Um, And does a body corporate manager want to put themselves in any position of conflict with the committee? Um, Or are they keen to retain the support of the committee and do what Mm. the committee want for the sake of making sure they get their contract renewed in 12 months time or whatever there is that element of the whole thing as well but I I do think that if you asked the bodies corporate who've gone through litigation with resident managers whether they would have done it in retrospect most would say no Mm. so I think body corporate managers can point to that and say, look, you can go down that route if you like, but I don't believe it's going to achieve the outcome that you want. Here's some alternative ways to deal with that. Mm. How about we try this? I guess body corporate managers are in a bit of a difficult position because at on the one hand, they want the support of the committee and want to be seen to be acting for the body corporate and partial to you know the committee's instructions who instruct them. Mm. Uh, but then again, the caretaker may have a large leading pool and fair sway with the voting power at an AGM and that leads to 
potential difficulties for reappointment for the manager. So how does the manager try and manage those competing issues? I, I think sometimes people overestimate the power of the manager to get his letting pool to vote the way that he wants them to. Most investor owners don't vote. They have a unit that their biggest concern is that monthly check. They don't like to get involved in the body corporate politics. So I, I don't think a body corporate manager should be too concerned about what the on-site manager might be able to do in terms of getting investor owners to vote a certain way for mm. the body corporate manager. Uh, it, but you're right, it's difficult. They do want the support of the committee because they want to be reappointed and they don't want to upset owners or necessarily the on-site manager either. But I do think that many of them won't go out on a limb Mm. and stop committees from taking certain action that they probably shouldn't be taking. Mm, even if they think it's not the course of action, yeah, yeah. it's in the best interest. Yeah, I mean, we'll often hear them say, it's not our role to tell the committee what it should be doing with this remedial action notice mm. or this breach notice. Well, sometimes maybe it is their role mm. to warn the committee of what they're doing and the fact that it won't get them the outcome that they want. And of course, then you've got the um, uh, the code of conduct. Uh, you know, caretakers and body corporate managers, and even committees must live yeah. by. And so that puts in another, uh, you know, element of okay, well, there's a disputed hand, but really, who's going to be harmed by all of this? Yeah, yeah. dollar wise and mm. relationship wise, yeah. you know, yeah. and that relationship can lead to poor performance mm. or decreasing nose diving performance. Yeah. There. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of um, some of the situations that you've seen, um, uh, now you had some involvement with the Gallery V decision there. Um, mm -hmm. what, what are your experiences and uh, take-homes out of that decision? Well, we need to remember that the circumstances in Gallery V were pretty unique mm. and it had not happened before then and it hasn't happened since then. So, it happened once in the history of management rights and I guess we have to go back to the 1960s when mm -hmm. management rights started so it was a very unique set of circumstances but it really um, uh, frightened the banks at that point in time and a number of them just stopped lending from mm -hmm. that point in time and we through the ARAM of the industry body we spoke to the government and the departmental people there acknowledge that the legislation did not have the intent that it was given by that decision and that there was a flaw in the legislation mm. which allowed that decision to come about. The answer is a very, very simple extra couple of words on a section yeah. in the Act. Uh, but the government uh, has more on its plate than worrying about Gallery V at the moment mm. and since then. It is, I understand, part of the review um, of the Body Corporate Community Management Act which the QIT, Duncan and Christensen mm. were, were doing. So we believe we'll see some changes. Or we, we may see some changes coming through when that when that occurs in the meantime all of the banks uh, have had different policies at different times about gallery v at the moment there are a couple of banks who aren't concerned by it and won't insist upon changes to the agreements to deal with gallery v mm. there are others that will insist upon it at almost every matter every every transaction and others that have a policy depending upon how much is being borrowed how much has been contributed mm. all those sorts of things so different policies all mm. around most managers have been trying to get the Gallery V changes made to their agreement. Nine out of ten are successful without any problem. We have a few where we haven't been able to get it through mm. at this stage. And for the benefit of those listening in regards to Gallery V itself, 
maybe if you give a bit of a rundown on the particular matter itself mm-hmm. and, and the types of changes that you've had to to perhaps advise on in in perhaps meeting the mm-hmm. financiers' uh, demands on, mm-hmm. on moving forwards yeah. with that. Yeah. I guess the, the, the history of Gallery V was that it was a complex called Gallery V on the Gold Coast where the incoming manager owed some money to a third party. The third party happened to be the previous manager and the money related to some part of the purchase price for the business. The manager got into trouble, financial trouble, and also got into trouble with the body corporate. The bank appointed a receiver to operate the management rights on behalf of the manager and the receiver was in place. The previous manager who was owed the money got a judgment against the manager for that debt and then took action to wind up the current manager. The body corporate said when the manager was wound up, well, the winding up of the caretaker manager is a ground of default under the agreement that allows the body corporate to terminate the agreement. We're going to terminate. The bank said, no, you can't. We have receivers in, and the legislation says that whilst under receivership, the body corporate can't terminate, and off they went to QCAT. And QCAT said that the winding up of the manager was an event of default and that did allow the body corporate to terminate, notwithstanding the receivership was in place. So what the banks have been asking for is that the agreements be amended to make it clear that in the case where the bank has stepped in and they have appointed a receiver or they have taken over the management rights, then an event of default such as winding up insolvency administration is not something which would allow the body corporate to terminate, notwithstanding what's in the agreement. So it's a fairly simple variation that you need to make to Mm. the agreement. But trying to explain that to a layperson, Mark, Mm. is pretty hard to do. And if you have a committee who do not like the manager for whatever reason, or uh, they are obstructionist, then it's very easy to confuse the owners and say, we should never agree to this. It gives the banks too much power, and when you've got a Royal Commission going on into the banking <laughs> industry that we've got, it's pretty easy to get people to vote against the banks. Yeah. So it's very it's very easy for bodies corporate to encourage people to vote no to that motion if they want to. Mm-hmm. If there's a lawyer acting for the body corporate who takes a reasonable approach, then they will generally advise the body corporate that the downside to the body corporate is very, very minimal, having regard to the fact that this event has occurred once in however many years. So, as I say, most bodies corporate, we've been able to get it through without any problem. There's been a a handful where we've struggled. And certainly, yes, um, I can recall at least a couple of occasions where I've had to deal with uh, bodies corporates uh, on that. Do you think it's really the issue of providing advice in a very clear and concise manner perhaps in writing uh, to the committee, having it tabled um, at a committee meeting and um, really taking the sting out of the potential uh, uh, disadvantages to the body corporate and maybe taking that approach. It is, Mark, and and we do that. And Mm. and we've got a couple of different publications that we have done, a very, very simple summary, Mm. a not quite so simple Mm -hmm. and a more complicated one. So depending upon the audience, we'll give them Mm. one of those and that does break it down into fairly simple components but even so the 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 reality is that the bank is asking for something that they currently haven't got Mm -hmm. and that is something which a difficult body corporate committee if they want to can use that against the manager and and some Mm. of them will and 
I've seen advice from lawyers to bodies corporate saying there is no reason why you should agree to this. Now, if a lawyer writes to the body corporate mm-hmm. and says there's no reason why you should agree, what are they going to do? So what happens when they don't agree? Well, when they don't agree, then you don't get to change, mm-hmm. and that then limits the potential buyers if you want to sell your management rights because unless they go to a bank who's happy to proceed without having the gallery v amendment then you can't sell your business Mm. so it it limits the number of potential buyers because of the limit on the number of potential financiers so the irony there of course is that uh, where a body corporate's trying to get rid of a manager they actually make it more difficult for them to achieve that goal correct so um, in terms of uh, some of the law reforms that um, you know, you've hinted at mm-hmm. with the um, Queensland University of Technology's uh, review and recommendations to the Attorney-General, um, where do you see law reform hitting in terms of management rights? I don't think there's many changes, Mark, from what I've seen. There was nothing uh, of any note in all of the material that I saw around management rights. Mm-hmm. Certainly there was a, a proposal that the on-site manager where uh, he or she may be a unit owner, that they be allowed to be a voting member of the committee. And there was initially support for that from other industry bodies. I'm not so sure that support is still there, so mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure what the government will do there. But most of the reform is around things other than management rights, as I recall. And yeah. I, I, don't, I don't see any big-ticket items, hopefully Gallery V, but I don't think we're in a, such a bad spot so far as management rights and dispute resolution is concerned. It's been reformed and reformed since 1997, and I think it's in a reasonable spot. And do you see perhaps bodies corporates... Uh turning more towards, say, their manager in trying to resolve disputes with between and using them as a almost a relationship broker between the two and, and uh, maybe having them as managers, body corporate managers, mm. almost try and uh, resurrect the relationship. Possibly. I, th- I think the thing that is changing and has changed in, in recent years is the way in which assignments are being dealt with because certainly up until a couple of years ago there was a perception out there that if someone came along as a potential new manager the body corporate really had no choice but to say yes unless they were some kind of criminal or a bankrupt or something Mm -hmm. like that and that was a message that was honestly fed by body corporate managers as well it was never right of course because the legislation is quite Yes. detailed about what they're entitled to take into account, etc. And what that meant was that there were a lot of people who came into the industry without really understanding what they were getting involved in for a start, without really understanding what was expected of them. And we're back to that word expectations yes. again. And there's certainly much more emphasis placed now on that assignment process and getting that right. And in some ways it might have gone too far, but that's another story. What we are seeing is that people like Danny Little are getting much more involved in that assignment process. Mm. Now, either through some kind of training before they even get to the assignment stage or training during the course of the assignment or some kind of compulsory training after the assignment. Mm. And quite frankly, if someone totally new to the industry without any experience in anything like management rights before who can't demonstrate a capacity to understand what they're getting into... I have no problem with them being required to undergo some form of training Mm. so they understand what they're getting involved in. Now, if that happens 
before they get in there, that's a positive thing. It is. Uh, and, and we're seeing more of that. So I think that as that assignment process is becoming more sophisticated, I think it's going to alleviate a lot of the post-settlement problems. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it's gone too far in terms of what somebody's corporate have been asking for. But through a whole lot of measures, we're getting that more under control now than what it, what it has been. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a positive thing. And I think that a body corporate manager can play a pretty important role in that in terms of selecting when that kind of training might be necessary and who they might want to go to for that kind of training. And it's part of the due diligence process in the committee providing consent to the yep. uh, transfer there. Yep. Do you think the differing um, uh, motivations to get into management rights, um, say namely as a job, the mum and dad job, maybe a bit of a sea change from from a completely different environment into what is perceived to be uh, you know, uh, a fairly nice job uh, where you stay at the scheme versus the investor that simply buys in, subcontracts everything. Mm-hmm. Do you see a lot of differences in the dynamics and the disputes that follow from those two different scenarios? Yes and no. I think different the different scenarios lead to different kinds of problems. If you take the situation where somebody wants to buy management rights purely as an investment uh, where they can put some people in there and run it and make money for them, I think that's often destined for for problems Mm. for a whole lot of reasons. Because what they're concerned about making as much as they can rather than necessarily producing the best outcome for Mm. everybody. And unfortunately, a lot of management rights businesses have been sold to people on the promise that you'll, you'll buy this business it'll show you a return on your investment of somewhere between 15 and 25%, whatever it might be. Mm. You know, I'm not sure that you can get that kind of money when you right. invest yours, Mark. I know mm. I can't. They don't explain to those people that you actually have to work mm-hmm. to get that return. So you've actually got to build in a wage factor there somewhere. So is yeah. it really such a great investment? So often they don't understand the amount of work that's involved to give them that return on their investment. Mm. So... There is a a natural conflict there. I say to people, rather than look at that and say, how can I make more money for less? I say, how can I do a really good job for my owners to ensure that I look after my investment? That's the way I think they should look at it, you know. And I think more and more are starting to do that. I think that the message is getting out there, that it's not just a case of you you buy these things and they just generate the money for you. So I think that's changing. Some of the um, the bigger companies that have got involved, and we've seen certain large companies, public companies or affiliates of public companies, come into management rights and, and not last for different reasons. Again, uh, their main motivation uh, is often profit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you, you can combine the two, profit and looking after owners as well. And there is one particular large company around at the moment that have a fantastic way of dealing with caretaking and looking after their buildings and they've got a great experience in letting as well and they're they're proving to be very very successful Uh, i've seen others that simply haven't worked it out they just haven't got the systems and the people in place to make it work so really it's about handling the situation and then the body corporate committee's got to really look at the different motivations and it can't unreasonably uh, decline to provide its consent but then again, it maybe needs to put 
measures in place or conditions in place to manage those different um, deficiencies? Well, they've got to be careful about imposing... There's an argument, I suppose. There's some people say the body corporate's got no right to impose any conditions at all. Well, the body corporate may well be entitled to say, well, if you don't like our conditions, we can't give you consent. So, you know, it's so in, in my view, there mm. are circumstances where you're better off to accept the conditions to get the consent rather mm. than take the argument you've got no right to impose any conditions at all. Yeah. So we are seeing situations where bodies corporate do impose conditions such as the need to go and undertake some form of training of some sort. And as I said before, if, if it's a manager with no demonstrated experience or capacity to do that mm. kind of work, that, that's a reasonable condition for the body corporate to impose. Mm. Um, so rather than the body corporate saying a blanket no because you've got no experience whatsoever... I'd be much happier if the body corporate said, we're happy to consent, but this is what we think you need to do. And again, if you have a reasonable lawyer acting for the body corporate, you're able to negotiate an appropriate set of training at, at a not unreasonable cost for that person to undertake. And I guess it's a, it's a matter of uh, case-by-case basis, matter of degree and matter of reasonableness, isn't yep. it, by yep. the body corporate? Yep. Yeah. Look, are there any take-home tips for body corporate managers, for caretaker managers, for committees uh, that uh, come out of management rights that might be just some key key things for them yeah. to think about? Well, I, I guess, Mark, as I've tried to emphasise throughout, aggression litigation generally won't solve the problem if you've got a if, if you have an issue with your on-site manager. Litigation is not going to solve it. It's going to cost a lot of money and and not achieve the outcome that you want. Communication is critical. The best schemes are those where you've got that partnership between the on-site manager, the body corporate manager and the committee, and that's what you have to strive to achieve. I do think certainty in an agreement is very, very helpful. Not absolutely critical, but I think it's very, very helpful as well. And that should be something that the parties ought to be aiming at because it helps define those expectations, which are where all the disputes occur fascinating discussion with you john and thanks again for your very insightful discussion today thanks mark thanks for the opportunity that's it thanks for listening to the second episode of the let's talk strata podcast tune in with us at letstalkstrata.com.au for your fortnightly dose of strata insights and stimulating discussion with leading strata professionals Next week, we will hear from our guest, Professor Michael Weir of Bond University School of Law, who will talk about possible strata law reforms and some body corporate matters that will affect all lot owners and occupiers in Queensland.